0: We open the Holy Scriptures to John chapter 15. We will read together verses 1 through 17 of John 15. So let us hear these words of Jesus Christ beginning at verse 1. Ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. For if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love." These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants. one another thus far we read in the holy scriptures we continue our study of the main truths of god's word as they are summarized and explained for us in the heidelberg catechism in our study of the scriptures core teachings we are up to lord's day 24 <clears throat> Beginning with question 62. But why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Because that, because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law, and also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. What do not our good works merit, which yet God will reward in this and in a future life? This reward is not of merit, but of grace. But doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? By no means. For it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 24, we have a polemical appendix to Lord's Day 23. Simply put, we have a defense of the grand truths that were explained to us in Lord's Day 23. Lord's Day 23 23 set forth the central biblical teaching of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Namely, that God declares His people righteous, perfectly righteous in His sight, on the basis of the satisfaction of Of Jesus Christ and God imputes to us the very perfect obedience of Christ. So that Christ's righteousness becomes our own. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ as a garment. That's the simple warm truth that's at the center of God's good news. And that's why the catechism devotes a whole Lord's Day to defending it. This is something worth fighting for. Not fighting for fighting's own sake. But fighting to defend what is so very precious. The simple, warm truth of justification. Which comforts our hearts and lifts our souls. And so what Lord's Day 24 does is it answers a few common objections to... The teaching that we are justified by faith alone. And the most common objections come from a perspective that wants to smuggle works into the equation somewhere. So that we are justified not only by faith alone. But we are justified in some way by something that we do. Some good work. And Lord's Day 24 says, absolutely not. We are righteous before God In Christ alone. And the reward that God gives his people is not a reward they have earned, but one that God graciously gives. And no, this teaching does not make men remiss in their spiritual life. It ought not. And if it does, then the man who becomes remiss in his spiritual life is misusing this truth. But rather, this truth of justification by faith alone, properly understood, is a motive, is a prompting to godly living. It is a fruitful doctrine. And so Lord's Day 24 highlights the true freedom that we have as Christians. And part of that true freedom that we have as Christians is that we are set free. We are free not to work For righteousness. And the idea here is this. We are free not to work to try to change our own legal standing in God's eyes. We are free not to try to work to earn God's favor. Because that's bondage. But rather we are set free to do works and to serve God freely without fear, out of gratitude for what He has done for us. We rest in Christ's righteousness. We rely upon Him. But that does not make us sluggish in our spiritual lives. It ought not. Our resting and relying upon Christ sets us free to do good works for the right reasons and with the right goal in mind to thank and to glorify our God. And so let's consider Lord's Day 24, its defense of justification by faith alone, under that theme of free not to work for righteousness. And first off we answer the question, not at all. You mean to say that we don't work for righteousness at all? Our works don't contribute anything to our legal standing before God? Not at all? And then secondly, we will look at the objection which follows from the answer to the first question. But God rewards. And if God rewards our good works, doesn't that mean they merit something? We'll answer that question. And then finally, we'll take on the last question and answer, which, in the voice of the objector, suggests that the doctrine of justification by faith alone leads to ungodliness. Does this truth set us free to be ungodly? And we will see, no, absolutely not. Not at all. I have nothing to contribute to my righteousness. As a guilty sinner, before God's law, I must be righteous to be saved. We saw that last week. God can only bless the righteous. For me to be saved, my legal standing before God's law must be changed from guilty to upright to righteous. Now how does that happen? We saw last week that that's God's work alone. On the basis of Christ's work on our behalf. God justifies his unrighteous people. He declares us righteous in his sight. He imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that Jesus' own righteousness becomes ours. And that changes our legal standing before God's law. From guilty to righteous in God's eyes. It's all of Christ. But now. That runs against the natural grain of our human nature, does it not? Human beings are works, righteousness, creatures by nature. We think we've got to have some role to play in this process. There's got to be something that I contribute to the changing of my legal standing before God. There's something I must contribute to make myself righteous. And even as regenerated believers, even as Christians who have the spirit that's still the natural bent of our human nature and our human thinking. If I'm going to be righteous before God, there's got to be something that I do to contribute. Cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Many would say Yes. There are a few who are sadly far removed from the gospel who would say that our righteousness before God is something of our own making. Righteousness before God is a big construction project and I'm the one that has to do the building, they say. Such a position... Is contrary to the word of God, such a position has a low view of God. Does not understand the height of God's holiness. The height of his standard for righteousness. Such a position does not understand the depths of sin. Such a position has a shallow view of righteousness. This is the position of the Pharisees. They had such a shallow view of God's law that they thought if they just externally kept the words of the Ten Commandments, they were good. They only went an inch deep into that unfathomable depth of God's law. But more widespread is the wrong position that our righteousness before God is something that must be built up through divine and human cooperation. God is going to do His gracious part and God's part is the biggest part. But there is still some part for me to contribute. I have to add something To make myself righteous before God. In the matter of righteousness. God won't or can't do it all for you. He might build most of that beautiful building. Righteousness. But you need to furnish him with a brick or two. And you need to make sure that that brick or two is fit into place. Or the building won't be finished. The word of God. Thankfully. Comfortingly. Says. Not at all. Not at all. Your good works. Are not at all. A part Of your legal standing before God. They do not contribute to your righteousness. They are not what God looks at. When he as judge declares that verdict. I forgive you for your sins. And I see you as righteous before my law. And therefore an heir of eternal life. That's not what God looks at. They don't enter the picture. They are not building blocks of that building righteousness. That's not their place. That's not their function. As we'll see later in the sermon, good works are important. God calls us to do them. We must never minimize that. But their purpose and their place cannot be, and is not, and may not be, making me righteous before God. My works don't contribute even the smallest crumb to that righteousness. And answer 62 lays out the simple biblical reasons for this. Number one. God's standard. God's standard is absolute perfection. And so you go to the objector to justification by faith alone. The position that wants to make my good works one or two. Or maybe more of the bricks that build that house of righteousness. And you say to them, this is is God's standard. Absolute perfection. The person that wants to contribute to their own righteousness. Hear what Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That's God's standard and His standard is perfect. So high because God is so high. Because God is so good. He can approve of nothing less. If God were to lower his standard. It would compromise his own righteousness. It would be acting contrary to his own being as God. God can never do that. His standard is absolute perfection. And that never changes. And that leads then to the second Biblical reason why the believer's good works cannot be the whole or even part or even a crumb of his or her righteousness before God. Even my best works, those works that you perform by the power of the Holy Spirit in you, even those best works are imperfect in this life. They're imperfections. Are not to be traced back to the Holy Spirit. It's not as if the Holy Spirit working in you. His work is imperfect. But the imperfections come from me. The bruises on the fruit. Are due to me. They're due to my sinful nature. And there's the reality that the catechism points out. As long as I am in this life. As a fallen sinner. Even my best works are imperfect. And they're tainted With sin. And therefore, even my best works can't measure up to the standard of absolute perfection. Even my very best works cannot be a single brick fit into that building of righteousness. The only, the only Righteousness, which can be approved of before the tribunal of God because it is absolutely perfect, is the righteousness of our head, the righteousness of our Savior, the righteousness of the only sinless man. Who perfectly obeyed God's law. Perfectly consecrated himself to his God all of the days of his life. Our head and our Savior who laid down his life to pay the penalty for our sin. And who fulfilled every demand of the divine law for us, Jesus Christ. That beautiful building of righteousness. Your righteousness, believer, before God's. Law, Your righteousness is put together with the bricks of Jesus' life and obedience. Let let your mind go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which record for us the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And every act of Christ that you encounter in the Gospels From his obedience to his parents when he was 12 years old recorded at the end of Luke 2. To all of his works of mercy and compassion and love for his neighbor. To his perfect worship and devotion to his father. His perfect life of prayer. To his substitutionary atonement. All of that is the building blocks of your righteousness. All of those things are the bricks fit into place to complete that beautiful house. Your righteousness before God. And you and I haven't contributed a single particle to it. Every brick is Christ's work for you. That's the believer's righteousness before God. That's the only righteousness that is approved of before the tribunal of God. And what good news that is for us poor sinful believers. It makes an end of fear. If I had to contribute even one brick to that building of my righteousness. And the standard of God, the master builder, is absolute perfection. I would be lost in utter terror. The whole project is going to collapse and fail because I cannot meet the standard of the holy master builder. But I don't contribute even the smallest bit. Jesus, His righteousness, is my righteousness. Credited to me. And that's what changes my legal standing before God. What Jesus has done for me. To go back to Lord's Day 23, that beautiful statement, God without any merit of mine but only of mere grace grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. And so a couple of applications. First, let's see that this sets us free. This truth sets us free. Free from working for righteousness. Free not to spend Our lives in that agonizing toil doomed to failure. The agonizing toil of trying to make myself worthy. Trying to win God's acceptance which is something I cannot ever do of myself. It would be an utterly hopeless and doomed endeavor if I had to furnish even one brick to that building. Of my righteousness. but The good news of the gospel sets me free. That's not what good works are for. That's not why God calls you to do them. Not to build your own righteousness. But to glorify and to thank the God who has built it for you in Jesus Christ. Who has saved you in the most amazing and astonishing way. Through the gift of his son. To pay for your sins. And to, f- to fulfill the law for you. God receives you believer not for works of righteousness you have done but for the sake of the works of righteousness Christ has done in your place God accepts you he accepts your person you have been restored to his favor entirely apart from your own working and your relationship with God your eternal security depends Upon nothing but the work of Christ for you. It sets us free, it sets us free from fear and from the toil of work's righteousness, which is a doomed enterprise. And then the flip side of that is it sets us free to work. The freedom of justification is not a freedom from good works. It is a freedom from working for the wrong reason. It is a freedom from working for righteousness. Justification sets us free now to work for the glory of God. To serve Him, to worship Him, to render unto Him acts of love. To love my neighbor as Jesus commands in John 15. Because my heart overflows with awe and wonder. And thankfulness for what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. That's why Christians want to be involved in good works. That's why Christians ought to be zealous for good works. Because I get to do them freely. Not working for a wage, but working as an act of deepest. Love for my God and my Christ and my neighbor. God's free grace creates true freedom. God's free justification makes us free to do justly. In the second place, justification by faith alone without works glorifies Jesus Christ and magnifies His work. Going back to that illustration of a building. Any brick that you would have to add to the building of your righteousness is a brick that Jesus doesn't add or Jesus couldn't add. And every brick that you would have to contribute would detract from His work. If you had to add a single brick to that building, it would mean Jesus and His work is in some way imperfect. And that Jesus is in some measure an incomplete Savior. That we are righteous before God, not of works, but entirely of Christ, brings glory and honor to God's name. Jesus is the builder of our salvation. Jesus is the builder of our righteousness. He's not the supplier. That's a common error. The idea being that Jesus through his work furnishes us with everything necessary. He gives us the tools to construct our own salvation. He calls us to use them. He encourages us to use them. Maybe he gives us a little push with his grace to use them. But it's ultimately up to us. No. The comfort of the gospel is Jesus is not the supplier. Jesus is the builder. And he builds it all. And he builds it completely. And his work is perfect. And that brings glory to God. Doesn't it? Doesn't it make you glorify God in your soul right now as you contemplate this truth of what Jesus has done for you? Oh, do we not want to thank him and worship him for what he's done. So that is the first concern of Lord's Day 24, my works, what do they contribute? Nothing at all to my righteousness, but now the Catechism lets us hear another objection from those who do not hold to this truth of justification by faith alone, but God rewards. But God rewards, and if God rewards, doesn't that mean our works get us somewhere with God? They get something from God. They earn, or they at least contribute to our standing before God. Isn't that what a reward necessarily entails? Yes, God rewards. The Bible teaches that God rewards the good works of His people. About that, there can be no dispute. Jesus teaches that truth of God's reward over and over again. For example, in Luke 6, verse 35, Jesus says, Love ye your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. Everywhere that's Jesus' teaching. In fact, if you read through the Sermon of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, you'll run into Jesus' teaching about reward numerous times. That word reward appears nine times in that sermon. As an aside then, this is a doctrine that is not to be shied away from. Some would like to do that. Some would say, don't talk about the doctrine of the reward of grace. It's dangerous, hands off, it shouldn't be emphasized, and that's mistaken. Jesus, of all people, emphasizes it. And who wants to say that Jesus is unclear in his theology or emphasized the wrong things? The danger of the doctrine of reward is not the doctrine itself. The danger comes when it is misinterpreted and misrepresented. In our human life, rewards usually are earned. When we think about a reward... It's usually in the context of merit or an exchange. So for an example, how many of us are members of some sort of reward program? If You go to a restaurant a certain number of times, you'll get rewarded with a discount coupon. Maybe 10% off on your next visit. After you've spent $500 at Myers, maybe you get an m perk that gives you $10 off your next purchase. It's a reward in exchange for something that you did. That's how rewards work among us. But that's not how rewards work with God. It's different. Yes, God rewards, but as the catechism says, based on the scriptures, his reward is not of merit, but of grace. And the idea here is God rewards as freely, as graciously, as he justifies us. When God rewards his people, it's not because we've earned it. It's not because we've done something for God and now in exchange He gives us something in return. It's not that by our good works we somehow indebt Him, obligate Him to pay us back. That's impossible. You can never put the living God in your debt. After all, you and I are indebted to God for every breath that we breathe. Everything we have is His which He has entrusted to us. You can't earn from God by giving to Him what is already His. And every good work that the believer does is worked in us, authored by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. It's utterly impossible for any good work to merit with God, to earn something from Him, to indebt Him to pay us back in some way. And so the answer to the question is, No! The Bible's teaching of reward does not mean works merit. Rather this. The fact that the Bible teaches that God rewards the good works of his people. Magnifies all the more how gracious God is. The reward is a free gift. He rewards his people Not because they are so good, or because their works are so good, but He rewards because He is so gracious. He freely gives. He crowns His gifts with yet more grace. And there we see the beauty of the Bible's teaching of the reward of grace. It magnifies all the more the graciousness of God. He piles grace upon grace. He piles gift upon gift. We've earned nothing. We deserve nothing. We can do nothing to obligate God to give us anything. And yet he piles it on more and more because he is generous. Because he is good. Because he is gracious. And he simply delights to bless his people. For Jesus' sake. Rightly understood, the doctrine of reward is nothing to be scared of. It's it's not something that stands in conflict with the truths of the reformed faith. But it is a beautiful teaching that harmonizes with justification by faith alone. Harmonizes with salvation by grace alone. And all the more highlights how gracious God is. A beautiful truth. And that fits with our experience. Doesn't it? When God lavishes a gift. Upon us. Whatever that gift may be. What believer. Feels in his or her heart. God's paying me back. I've been really faithful. In my church attendance lately. And God's giving me my due. I I, I showed love to my neighbor. Yesterday and. God's paying me back for that. Nothing's farther from the heart and mind of the believer. If that believer is in a spiritual frame of mind. And walking by faith. The believer says. I've done nothing to deserve this. The very fact that I've attended church and wanted to come to church. Is due to the work of God's grace in me. By nature I don't want to be there. By nature, I don't love my neighbor. By nature, I'm still prone to hate my neighbor. The very fact that I had compassion for my neighbor and I reached out in love. That was God's workmanship in me. That was His grace. And now whatever gift comes to me in connection with that, it's just more grace piled upon grace. That's what the believer sees. That's what the believer feels. And so, a couple of applications now in connection with this second question and answer. First, let's see that there's good reason why Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount and in his teaching, emphasizes the doctrine of the reward of grace. Because there is very real pastoral value to this truth, it's encouraging. It's an incentive to the weary, heavy-laden believer to persevere. Not because if I persevere, I'll earn something. But because God graciously sets before me a promise. He shows His children the good that He has in store for them. In this life and in the next life especially. And He sets that good before us to spur us on in the battle against sin. In the life of godliness. In enduring suffering. It's encouraging. It's encouraging when God says. I reward my people freely. I have good in store for you. Think of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. One of the greatest hardships that God's people endure in this life is persecution of all forms, whether it's facing the sword of an enemy of the faith that wants to take your life, or whether it's facing ridicule and scorn or being ostracized from society or from others on account of your confession of Christ. Whatever that persecution may be. It's hard. It's painful. And the devil tries to use it to tempt us to deny Christ. Or to hide our light under a bushel. And so in Matthew 5, 11, and 12, Jesus sets forth the reward of grace as an encouragement to us to persevere. Matthew 5. 11 and 12. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. Doesn't that encourage? How much will that encourage saints In the latter part of the last days when persecution becomes very intense. Great will be my reward in the kingdom of heaven. Not because my bearing of persecution earns it. But because my God is so good to me. Lastly this morning, free to be ungodly. Is that what this truth means? We don't contribute to the building project of our righteousness before God. God rewards us freely of his grace, not on account of our works, not because our works merit. Now, does that mean does that mean we are set free to live ungodly lives and not worry about it? Because after all our works don't save us. Does the truth of justification by faith alone cut the legs out from underneath the Christian's life of godliness? Or to use the language of the catechism, does this make men careless in their spiritual lives and profane worldly in their conduct? If it ever does, and sometimes it does, it's not... The fault of the truth of justification. But it is the fault of the person who is misusing that truth in a sinful way to give himself license to indulge his sinful flesh. The sinful flesh likes this idea. The sinful flesh wants to misuse grace. The sinful flesh wants to say, yes, I'm saved by grace alone, and so I really don't have to be that diligent in my Christian life. I have a great intellectual grasp of the truth of justification. I can parse all of these different elements of doctrine, and so I'm good, and how I live really doesn't matter. I can be careless. I don't have to be so concerned about fruits of godliness. They don't save me. They don't contribute to my righteousness. So why worry about them? If I confess grace, I can live how I please. And even if someone wouldn't say that out loud, it's the thought of the heart. By no means... Answer 64 says, and that's strong language. To put it another way, the catechism says, perish the thought. Perish the thought that grace creates careless, profane people. Perish that thought, because that thought is an insult to God. In fact, that thought is a denial of the power of grace. It's as much a denial of the power of grace as the works righteousness thinker denies the power of grace. The works righteousness person says grace doesn't get me saved, I have to save myself. But the person who thinks he can live a a careless and profane life denies the power of grace to change him. Both are an insult to the glory of God. Grace has a purpose. Justification aims at a goal. And the purpose of grace is the complete refashioning of the child of God after the image of Jesus Christ. Justification is not the end of God's saving work. It's the legal basis for all of His saving work. But on the legal basis of justification comes sanctification. The inward work of the Holy Spirit to change me from the inside out. So that more and more I walk in godliness. I love my God and love my neighbor as myself. And you can't rip these two apart. You can't cut up the one work of God's salvation and say, because because I emphasize and have this part, this part really isn't important. I don't really need this part. And if I don't pay attention to it, that's fine because I've got this. That's an insult to God. The Christian who confesses vigorously the doctrine of justification, also is vigorously committed to the life of godliness that must follow from his justification. And that's why we read John 15 this morning. John 15, the familiar illustration that Jesus uses of the vine and the branches. Jesus Christ is the true vine. He is the living one. In him is spiritual life, holiness. We, by nature, are like dead sticks. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are united to the true vine. We are implanted into Christ. And the Spirit causes that power of Christ, that life of Christ, to flow into us. And the necessary effect of that is that all the branches who are implanted into Christ bear fruit. The fruit of a new life. The fruit of good works done in thankfulness to God. And John 15 emphasizes that that's God's purpose. The husbandman desires fruit. Fruit glorifies him. God saves spiritually dead sinners. And an amazing part of that salvation is that he justifies the ungodly. Clothing them in the righteousness of Christ. But another amazing part of that salvation. Is once he has justified that ungodly sinner. He works in the heart of that sinner. More and more to change him. To refashion him after the image of Christ. So that that person begins living a new life. Begins Really begins obeying all of God's commandments. Works in that child of God so that he or she becomes a fruitful branch of the vine. What branch will say, I'm engrafted into the true vine and therefore bearing fruit really isn't important. I can stay here like a dead stick. What an insult to the God who put that put that one in the true vine and grafted them. And so that's why the catechism says in the last question and answer it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Irresistible grace irresistibly brings forth fruits of thankfulness. Irresistible grace creates... In the believer who is united to Christ, an irresistible desire to do good works for the praise of God, to live a godly life. Justification does not set us free to be ungodly. Justification sets us free to be godly. Through the power of Christ in me. Justification sets me free to want, to want to live a new life for the glory of God. To bear fruit consciously and actively. And that's important too. Don't push the vine branch analogy too far. It's not the idea of that analogy that we're engrafted into the true vine and then we just sit there and do nothing and godliness just pops out of us. Because you're not a piece of wood. You're a human being. You're a moral rational creature that God has saved to be His child. And God doesn't want you to live like a piece of wood. He wants you to live like Christ. And so, though the catechism on the basis of Scripture teaches the inevitability of good works coming forth from the one who is implanted into Jesus Christ, that is not license to be lazy. But all the more reason to be diligent, active, careful in our spiritual lives, striving for growth in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What a truth. Justification. What a profitable truth. That comforts the soul. Relieves our fears. And prompts us to a life of godliness. May the Lord press that truth upon our hearts. Renewing our delight in the gospel. And renewing our zeal godly life. Amen. Faithful God and Father. We thank Thee for the gospel. We thank Thee for our justification. In Christ. We thank Thee for the spirit of Christ. Who works in our hearts. To bear fruit. Make us a fruitful people. Set free. Who now delight. To walk in thy ways. All of this through Christ our Lord. Amen.